Hello all and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You're back with North Wales' premier one-man spare room-based show that covers obscure and long-forgotten unfamiliar crimes from both the UK and Ireland. And I'm that one man, the creator and host of the show Paul, the enthusiast of the show's title. It's fabulous as always having you here joining me. New listeners welcome and old friends welcome back as ever. I hope that this episode finds you all well and good. I'm now back into the stride of things after the festive break, plus from my change to the last episode for unforeseen personal reasons. We're back on form right now, leading up to the second half of this series. I was especially pleased with the feedback from the previous episodes. They seemed to go down very well, and I had loads of kind comments concerning it, so thanks very much for that all. I thought the listener episode especially was a fantastic job by Lance and Mike there. Loved it. By all means, if you too have got a case that you think, Ooh, yeah, that's a good fit for Paul to cover. And please feel free to get in touch about it. Who knows, it may even be one already on the fridge blackboard. Yes, the old fridge blackboard's still going strong, that. And this has happened a few times already. Thanks very much to the Patreon supporters of the show this week, with shout-outs especially going out to new supporters, Tracy Wiley, Aidan Lunch, Jenny Carson, Kristen Montgomery, Tamia, Nicola Argent, Angie S., Ashley Kirkpatrick, Sarah Smith, Casey Adolfson, Alex McMillan and Rebecca Pittman. I know that's uh, quite a few and I'm playing catch up a bit here because it's due to support against when I record the episode. But as I've said before, I will always get round to name checking all of you guys. Your support's very much appreciated and it really does make the difference between me eating healthily or living off cat food. Well, No, that's an exaggeration, of course, isn't it? It does go back into the show for merchandise, equipment, research materials, that kind of thing. I've got a crime library at home now that makes Hogwarts look like a doctor's waiting room. And it's one that I use completely. I really do, yeah. I'm still old school and I love a full bookshelf. I love books coming out of everywhere. Kindles I can see the practicality and benefit of, but it's not quite the same as leafing through a decades-old copy of Real Life Crimes or True Detective magazine to me. I much prefer that. So exciting news, in a couple of weeks on the show I have another collaboration coming up with Jess Carter who's the host of one of my absolute favourite podcasts, The Outlines Podcast. Last year Outlines and the True Crime Enthusiast covered together the 1974 still unsolved murder of Josephine Backshall. Myself and Jess decided to work together again at the time and we've chosen yet another unsolved case that we've long been discussing. Now it'll likely be in the same vein as the last episode that we did. Jess will get to recount the case details and she actually went to visit the scene a while back I know and for my part I'll look into the various theories about the crime in an episode which will be heading your way next month. But that's next month, and before that, I've got this week's episode, and we've got a lot to get through. Now, I've said for ages that we'll be visiting Scotland on the show, and for the next three episodes, that's exactly where we are. The episodes, I hope, will become self-explanatory as to why they form a trilogy, and there may be tales contained within some that listeners may already be familiar with, including at least one that may sound a bit like deja vu, or at least something that you've heard previously on another show. And there is a reason for that. Over the course of this and the next few episodes, you may come across descriptions and details of crimes and events as ever on the show that may be disturbing to listeners. 
Now, I don't include details to shock. It is, as always, to understand and appreciate the magnitude of the offences themselves. So bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the first part of what we shall call the Carstairs Trilogy. Millions of people worldwide are affected in their lives by a mental illness of some sort. This doesn't just pick upon a certain type of person, it can affect anybody at any single time, perhaps as a sudden affliction, as the result of a very specific event, perhaps a gradual unwellness that builds up over time. It can vary in condition and severity of course, and the chances are that you and I each know someone who's been affected by it, or perhaps it may even be closer to home. I know, being honest, that I've had dark periods in my own life, as I'm sure that many of you listening have also. For many people, it's a short period in their lives never to be repeated, and it fixes depending upon their personal circumstances changing, successful counselling and or support, or the support of medication. But for others, mental illness may be something much more serious that cannot be dealt with like this, and it can't be dealt with at a community level. They may feel that they've got no support or it may be refused and it sadly can't be dealt with, often leading to tragic circumstances. They may harm themselves or others and for some people it may require hospitalisation with differing levels of security for differing lengths of time. In the UK there are four such high security hospitals that cater for individuals with mental disorders that incorporate dangerous, violent and criminal propensities. You've got Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside, you've got Rampton Hospital in Nottinghamshire and perhaps the most infamous, you have Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire. Tales of the exploits of some of the high profile patients at these establishments are commonplace and they'll be familiar from the press and media plus previous episodes of the show where we may have met one or two of these people. And these places have been commonplace names to any student of true crime. But the fourth one, the one that's often overlooked, lies north of the UK border near the village of Carstairs in the Scottish county of South Lanarkshire. For more than 60 years, the substantial and imposing premises set on a moor just off remote Lampitz Road has provided treatment and care in high security conditions for those patients from Scotland and Northern Ireland who can't receive care in a less secure environment due to their dangerous and violent temperaments. Its official title is the State Hospital, but it takes its more common moniker from the village that's right next to Carstairs. For many years, people with any kind of mental illness were sent to asylums, awful sounding places where, when you read the reasons that some people were sent there many years ago, it boggles the mind at how awful such a place must have been. I mean, people were sent there for things such as disappointment in marriage, melancholia, or even, unbelievably, I can't believe this when I read it, sunburn or sunstroke. The list goes on and there are many things that are so much better understood today. It was a proper different world back then, wasn't it? Anyone displaying any abnormality of the mind of any kind, of any level, was sent here from suffering sunburn, yeah, still can't believe it, right through to being a heinous axe murderer, all were kept together in one place and categorised as just being not right in the head, basically. Scotland followed suit with the rest of the country when eventually, it was realised that the criminally insane, the violent and aggressive, would be better suited in a separate establishment from those with sunburn or melancholia or disappointment in marriage, whatever the hell that is. 
I'm following this, these were for a long time housed at a one of its kind unit that was created specifically for the purpose at Perth Prison. This unit soon filled up however and as is the case today with custody suites, it was a bit of a conveyor belt. Many people were released after a short time here due to overcrowding, and whilst the majority of these went on to lead the rest of their lives in uneventful circumstances, some people did go on to reoffend, and they were once again returned to the unit, so it's just constantly full. Many people have managed to escape custody throughout this period, but were recaptured. By the turn of the 20th century, the message slowly began to sink in that a new, separate, bigger institution was needed. It wasn't until 1936 though that a former military camp at Lampitt's Farm near Carstairs in South Lanarkshire was selected for this purpose and building work began on the 217 acre site where the state hospital stands today. Initially it was to be a facility to house those clusters mental defectives which I think is a horrible term and that are correctly termed today as patients with a learning disability. But by the time building work was completed, it was 1939, and it was considered then that there was a bit more pressing need for the building rather than to give care to the mentally ill. So it was instead handed over to the military, where for the duration of the Second World War, it was used as a hospital to treat mostly service personnel requiring treatment for injuries that were received in conflict. It wasn't until 1948 that it was handed back for civilian use and persons with learning disabilities began receiving care in the facilities on the west wing of the site. Building work continued there for the next nine years until 1957 when the new buildings on the east wing had finally been completed. With all this construction done, the patients were transferred here and the state hospital was now in a position to also receive the category of patients that it had first been proposed to contain more than 20 years before. On the 1st of October 1957, 90 such prisoners who'd previously been kept at the delightfully titled Criminal Lunatic Department at Perth Prison were transferred to the Carstairs site along with staff, and the combined institution then became the State Mental Hospital. The focus at the time here was very much one of containment as a primary role, with treatment offered only as a secondary element. Disorders were nowhere near as understood as they are today, and treatments were either basic, non-existent, or almost draconian. It often existed of nothing more than giving people peace and quiet and encouraging them to undertake a therapeutic pastime right through to extreme means such as plugging a person's head into the mains for electric shock treatment. However, that could have ever been explained off as being beneficial to anyone is totally beyond me. I've seen and read the brilliant but sad One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and it didn't do McMurphy any good whatsoever, did it? Nurse Ratchet, you horrible vicious bastard. For a few years this is how it went until 1960 when a new Mental Health Act came into force. One of the Act's main features was that mental defectives and persons suffering from a mental illness no longer required to be nursed separately. But as with all changes this was implemented very slowly and generally the ethos changed very little and the main goal remained as containment rather than treatment. That goal has now changed and today, as the only high security psychiatric hospital covering Scotland and Northern Ireland, 
the state hospital's aim is to rehabilitate patients to ensure in their safe transfer to an appropriately lower level of security. It's today a sole male patient environment, employing around 650 nursing and administrative staff, with 140 places for patients requiring maximum secure care, 12 of these specifically for patients with learning disabilities, and an additional 4 beds for emergency use. Wards are structured into four hubs, with each unit comprising three 12-bedded areas, 36 beds per hub. The average age of patients is reported at being 42 years old, and the majority have a primary diagnosis of schizophrenia. But many have multiple diagnoses, including learning disabilities, bipolar, affective disorder and depression. Patients are admitted to the state hospital by law, due to their dangerous, violent or criminal propensities, but it should be stressed that not all have been convicted of an offence, although those without formal convictions will have displayed seriously aggressive behaviours, including physical or sexual aggression or violence, and that's the reason that they go there, it's not just for fun. Around three quarters of these patients are restricted patients, in other words those who've committed crimes but are mentally unfit to be in incarceration in the prison system and the current average length of a patient's stay is six years. But lengths of stay can vary. It can be for less than a month to more than 40 years. Specialist treatments for specific offending behaviours are required and implemented to reduce the risk posed by these patients to themselves and others. But therapies and activities are an important and encouraged part of care and treatment at the state hospital, and patients have access to a wide range of these, including the use of a self-contained health centre and atrium, a cafe, large garden facility and aviary, library, a shop, there's even a bank there. It's like a self-contained town, if you like. So Carstairs, that's how we'll refer to it onwards from here, shares the same values, aims and challenges as the rest of the NHS in Scotland, but it's unique because it has the dual responsibility of caring for very ill, detained patients as well as protecting them, the staff and the general public from harm. In that aspect, security there is of the strictest and highest level. It has to be, doesn't it? There are more cameras there than there are at a royal wedding, and there are more fences than there are at Aintree. There's no unannounced visits from members of the public allowed, and all staff, volunteers, contractors and visitors must be strictly vetted and must adhere strictly to the implemented and documented security procedures with no deviation whatsoever. All access, egress and movement within the hospital is supervised 24 hours a day and comprehensive contingency arrangements are in place should any potentially serious emergency situations arise within the state hospital environment. Now locals who live in the villages and hamlets surrounding the sizeable state hospital grounds, such as those in the villages of Ravenstruther, Carnston and Carstairs Junction, are regularly reminded that these contingency arrangements exist. The facility has an audible alarm system based on World War II air raid sirens that are set over six different sites that cover all of the surrounding villages which are activated and sound if any patient escapes from the state hospital to alert people in the vicinities to take all precautions. On the third Thursday of every month of precisely 1300 hours, this two-tone alarm system is maintenance tested, and the all-clear sound, which is a series of three 30-second blasts, is activated. 
It's been in place for more than 40 years now, and if it's continuous, of course, it means that there's been an escape and then there is a very serious problem. People who've lived in the area for many years are totally used to this familiar, but it must be chilling sound. There's actually a video on YouTube that you can hear it. But undoubtedly, they remember the reason for its implementation and its regular testing, an episode which is arguably the most infamous chapter in Carstairs history. But calm your jets, I'd be jumping myself to launch right into that tale. That's one that I'm saving for the next part of the trilogy. But even that tale begins with the story of the person that you'll meet this week on the show. A person who many claim to be the most remarkable patient to ever be in Carstairs. See what you think, sit back as we recount the tale that's part one of the Scottish chain of ten, the gnome who spoke to God. Great title or what, eh? Many years spent as a policeman had made 58-year-old Alexander Matheson a naturally suspicious person, even after retiring. As an ex-copper myself, you never quite stop thinking as one. You pay attention to the most trivial of things, you're constantly suspicious, so paying attention to a scrap of paper that he found on the frozen ground whilst on his rounds as a water bailiff on the morning of Friday, March the 16th, 1962, was quite routine for Alexander. Likely anybody else would have dismissed it as just being simple litter, but there was something about that piece of paper. It was near lying on the ground near a lay-by on the bank of the River Truim that borders the A9 near the Scottish village of Newtonmore in Invernessia that caught his eye. Upon closer inspection, it transpired that it was a page of a road map and it was one that appeared to have blood staining on it. The policeman in Alexander kicked in when he noticed the blood staining and placing the paper back in the exact position that he discovered it, weighted down with a rock to prevent it blowing away, Alexander began to scan the immediate area. A cursory search drew his attention to a pile of branches and leaves that were laying in a hollow very near to the lay-by and approaching it, Alexander noticed a number of items lying on the ground beside the pile. It was a rubber-coated torch, a guidebook, and a shoe sticking out of the earth underneath the branches. The shoe still contained a human foot. Alexander immediately drove the two miles to Newtonmore Police Station to report his discovery, and within a short time detectives were en route to the scene from the police headquarters in Inverness. The scene was preserved and photographed, and excavation began of the shallow grave. Before long, police had uncovered the fully clothed body of a dark-haired male aged in his mid to late twenties. Nearly six feet in height, he lay face down and was well dressed in a green anorak, fawn jumper, white shirt and green tie, and terrelene trousers. A search of the clothing produced nothing that could identify the dead man. There was no wallet, no checkbook or driving license. All that was found on his person with 13 shillings, 7 pence in cash, and 7 condoms. He was also found to have no visible injuries, apart from what was almost certainly a gunshot wound in his forehead, above his left eye. An examination of the dead man's shoes told police that he must have been a driver though. The sole of his right shoe had a worn patch in the centre, indicating frequent contact with what was most likely an accelerator pedal. Detective Inspector Roderick Fraser 
the senior investigating officer, concluded that the dead man's car had then been taken by his killer. He was also likely to have buried the body at night, because if he'd buried it in the day, he would likely have noticed that he'd left a foot sticking out of the grave, as well as a torch, guidebook and part of a road map lying about the gravesite. Tend to notice things like that, wouldn't you? Alexander Matheson showed investigators the scrap of paper that he'd weighted down and preserved, and it gave police the first hint of a lead. Faintly penciled on the back of the scrap of paper was an address, number 1 Lowell Street, in the English city of Leeds. And in the early hours of the following morning, the Leeds City Police were telephoned. They duly sent a patrol to the address indicated on the paper, but this drew a blank. The couple who lived there, Mr and Mrs Wilde, were mystified. They could think of no one who fitted the description of the dead man, and they were at a loss as to why their address came to be written on the map. A post-mortem examination revealed that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head from close range, and although the examining pathologist recovered the bullet, which was a .22 small calibre type, a search of the grass verges and areas for many miles north and south of the gravesite produced no weapon that the bullet could be matched to. The killer hadn't disposed of the gun, at least not anywhere nearby. In an attempt to identify the mystery man, a description of him and his clothing was circulated around the houses, pubs and garages of the neighbouring districts, but nobody could identify him. Then on the 20th of March, Leeds City Police contacted the investigating team up in Scotland with a fresh development. When officers had called at the address that was written on the map only a few hours after the body had been discovered, it was only the husband and wife of the house who were at home. They had a daughter, Sheila, who'd been out at a wedding reception at the time of the police visit, but after speaking to her family, had subsequently come forward and volunteered that the dead man in Scotland was quite possibly her boyfriend of 16 months, a 30-year-old Yorkshire electricity board engineer, named George William Green. Sheila worked in the same office as George and had expected him back from Scotland on the 14th of March, where he'd set off for on the 7th of March for a week skiing holiday in the Aviemore area. He'd specifically timed the holiday to allow his married sister to stay at the house at number 28 Woodley Street in Leeds that he shared with his widowed mother. And as Sheila didn't share his passion for skiing, George had gone alone on his holiday with her blessing. He hadn't returned at the designated time that he was supposed to though, and almost a week later, with still no word from him, even to his boss who had long expected him back at work, Sheila had begun fearing the worst. Police going around to her parents asking them why their address had been found written on a piece of evidence found at a murder scene had swung it for the poor girl. At almost the same time as Sheila was telling police her fears, George's mother, Marion Green, was also separately speaking to police reporting him as a missing person. Her report was connected with the events in Scotland. George closely matched the description of the dead man, he could be placed in the same general vicinity at the time, and his mother could issue police with another lead, the details of his car, a black 1957 Ford Anglia model, Registration number YUM772. It was a distinctive car further in that it had a bent rear offside bumper and both wing mirrors were broken, plus a special fixture had been added below the boot to carry the spare tyre. 
Whilst the nationwide alert went out for the missing vehicle, Mrs Green was invited to identify what police were now convinced was the body of her son George. They were sadly right, and later that day George's mother made an impassioned plea to the public for anyone with information about the murder to come forward. She described George's good character, how he was a kind and popular man who would be constantly trying to improve himself by studying and applying himself to learning a new subject every year, and how he was a keen walker and skier, having visited the Aviemore region of Scotland several times before. She couldn't understand why anyone would want to kill him, adding, The terrifying thing is, it could happen again unless the killer is caught. The chief constable of Invernessia, James McIntyre, furthered this appeal, saying, We are up against it. We must find the murdered man's car. It is the duty of every man, woman and child in Britain to help us track down this killer. Soon afterwards, blood-stained clothing and a holdall were found dumped in a stream some eight miles south of the lay-by, and the holdall matched items that George's mother had described him having taken to Scotland with him. Police now theorised that George had at some point picked up a hitchhiker, something his mother told police that he'd often done. He had then killed him, buried his body in the shallow grave, and had fled in his car. The discovery of the holdall and clothing suggested that the killer had headed south and had dumped the items on his journey, so a search of the area for a possible dumped murder weapon got underway, assisted by army personnel who were on exercise in the area at the time. One of the army officers also came forward to volunteer what was to turn out to be a crucial sighting. Whilst on training manoeuvres near the Highland village of Dulnane Bridge, as part of the exercise, a vehicle checkpoint had been established on the road. The officer commanding distinctly remembered that on the 7th of March, the day George Green was believed to have arrived in Scotland, a black Ford Anglia registration number YUM772 had been stopped at the roadblock late in the afternoon. There were two men in the vehicle. There was a small man in an anorak and thermal gear who was driving, and another tall, dark-haired man in the passenger seat who was slumped against the door, apparently asleep. The driver claimed that his companion was simply sleeping off the effects of a drinking session after he didn't stir, explaining, He's sleeping after having too much to drink at lunchtime. When he wakes up, he'll think I'm joking when I tell him we stopped at an army roadblock. The soldiers had accepted this explanation and waved the vehicle through. Moments later, as it had skidded and become stuck in the snow, they'd even gone and given it a push and helped the car on its way. So it seemed likely, incredibly even, that the sleeping passenger was actually the dead body of George Green. But why had his killer risked capture by driving around with a corpse of his victim in the passenger seat of the car? The probable answer was that he'd killed George in broad daylight and he so couldn't risk just leaving the body at the roadside where it would soon be spotted. He'd driven on searching for a suitable place to dump the body and he'd then reached the roadblock where he'd managed to bluff his way through. He parked in the lay-by under the cover of darkness and hastily buried the body using a snow shovel that George Green kept in the boot of his car. Police were now convinced that George had been killed early on the 7th of March. This tallied with a report from his mother, 
who said that George had promised to get in touch from whichever hotel he was staying at when he'd arrived there to let her know that he was okay. Because mums like to know things like that about their sons, don't they? I know my mum would be like that. She'd never received a telephone call from George. By the time of his funeral, which was held in St Mary's Church in Beeston, Leeds, on the 23rd of March, police had discovered more about his final movements. The stomach contents recorded at the post-mortem had revealed undigested pieces of mushroom, which was likely part of an omelette that George had eaten not long before his death. The checker cafes around the Newtonmore area revealed two waitresses at one of them, Ina McPherson and Catherine MacDonald, who remembered serving a man of George's description that very meal, a mushroom omelette. He was a customer who'd especially stuck in their minds because of the strange and memorable tale that he told them whilst he was having his meal. Chatting with them, he described how he'd picked up a strange hitchhiker on his way north, who soon into the journey had revealed himself to be what George classed as a religious nut. Chatting amiably, the man had, without warning, pulled down the collar of his sweater to reveal that he was wearing a clergyman's collar and had said that when he was a child, God had spoken to him and told him to make a light, which he did so by setting fire to a haystack. He went on to tell George how he'd read the Bible cover to cover several times while he was a teenager and had tried to spread the word of the Lord going door to door as an encyclopedia salesman. Disillusioned though because he found that not only did people not want his encyclopedias but they also didn't want to know God's word and he'd attempted suicide but God had stopped him from hanging himself because he needed him to live, he had work for him to do. The man then said he'd subsequently been voluntarily committed to an asylum in order to cast out the patient's devils. Way to break the ice or what that, eh? I bet that was a fun journey wasn't it? Bloody hell. So although he wasn't in fear of his passenger because he outmatched him in size and build, George was perhaps a little bit disturbed by this. I mean, who wouldn't be? I proper would. George had tried to steer the subject away from religion and had spoken to his strange passenger of his plans to get married. This had invoked an animated response from the man, who then turned on George, condemning him as a sinner, and began ranting and raving about God's way and the word of the Lord at him. So this was enough for George, and he stopped the vehicle a few miles south of Newtonmore in a lay-by on the A9, dropping the man off and telling him to find himself another ride. As George was telling this story to the waitresses, they saw a strange figure walk past the cafe window. I know it gets proper cold up in Scotland, but this guy was so decked up against the freezing elements in his heavy boots, thermal long johns and rolled up stocking cap that the waitresses remembered him later looking like a gnome or a ball of green wool. I'd be exactly the same as him though. I mean, those people who know me know that I'm one of the neshiest people ever and I feel the cold something terrible. I'm always colder than the wall in Game of Thrones. The man who'd walked past the window was the same strange passenger that George had just described. And the waitresses remember George pointing him out, distinctly saying... That is the head case that I picked up on the road. He further went on that he hoped the man found himself another lift before he set off to continue his own journey onto Aviemore. 
Had George set off to continue his journey, but spotted the small lone figure again whilst he was driving north, and taking pity on him, offered him another lift, but this time at the cost of his life. Over the next few weeks, police records were scrutinised and the movements of anyone with a record of violence involving firearms was followed up, as well as an examination of anyone who was still at large following an escape from Borstal, prison or mental institution. But police still thought that their best lead would be tracing the whereabouts of George's black Ford Anglia. It may still be in the possession of the killer, or if it had been disposed of, it may still yield important forensic evidence or even witnesses who may have seen it being dumped when it was found. There was the distinct possibility, though, that if the killer was still using it, that false number plates had been placed on the vehicle, as the distinctive registration YUM772 would likely have stuck in the minds of the public. Possible sightings of the vehicle came in from as far afield from Aberdeen down to South Wales, and each was checked and ruled out, and absolutely everywhere was searched for it. Remote fields, quarries, at the bottom of cliffs, at the bottom of ponds, down the back of the sofa, everywhere. The Blackford Anglia was nowhere to be found. Until Saturday the 5th of May. Detectives in Manchester received a telephone call which led to them detaining a Scottish man in his 20s and taking a Ford Anglia car to their headquarters and it was all due to the diligence of a 19-year-old man named Mark Davenport. Mark was the son of a garage proprietor and as such he'd grown up around cars, he'd lived and breathed them since he was a toddler and had as such developed a lifelong interest in them knew the make, the model and the production year of any car on the road. Sat in traffic on Stockport Road, he'd spotted in front of him a 1957 Ford Anglia vehicle that had recently been sprayed grey and red, which was apparent by the amateurish job that had been made of it. It was also bearing a number plate that Mark noticed was too new to be on that model of car, DJA20 and remembering the notice on the wall of his father's garage, the bulletin detailing the 1957 Ford Anglia the police in Scotland were so anxious to trace, sharp-eyed Mark had put two and two together. As he was driving behind the vehicle at the time, Mark managed to attract the attention of a uniformed officer near Longsight Police Station to alert him of his suspicion that this was the vehicle that police had been searching for. Jumping into the vehicle, the police officer and Mark followed the car to a lock-up garage on Daisy Bank Road in the Manchester district of Chorlton-on-Medlock. They parked up and watched the driver garage the vehicle before the driver, a small man who looked to be in his mid-twenties, headed into a house on nearby Hathersage Road. Whilst the police officer went and requested assistance, Mark kept watch on the house to make sure the driver didn't move and less than 10 minutes later, police were inside. They found the driver in his bedroom, casually sat on his bed eating an apple, and his first words in response to seeing a load of police stood in his bedroom in his house were, as calm as you like, Hello, I suppose you want me for the A9 murder. You wouldn't expect a response like that, would you? The man was arrested, the Ford Anglia was recovered and both were soon heading to Manchester Police Headquarters. This was the breakthrough that police had been waiting for. 
and 90 minutes after the suspect was arrested, D.I. Fraser and D.C.I. Jimmy McLaren of Glasgow CID were en route to Manchester, following a call to say that the Ford Angler had been found and a suspect had been arrested. George Green's mother soon afterwards travelled to a police garage in Manchester and confirmed that despite the altered paint job and differing registration plates, it was undoubtedly her son's car, she told police. It's been resprayed and the number plates have changed, but I have no doubt about it. I've ridden in it many times and I know little points about it. Examination of the Ford Anglia engine number 100E337869 established beyond all doubt that this was George Green's car. Whilst the registration plates, DJA20, turned out to have been stolen from a mechanical digger in Altby in Scotland. A thorough forensic examination and search of the vehicle was then made, with the main thing of note found in the vehicle being documents, but surprisingly not documents relating to George Green. They did, however, relate to a Swiss man who'd recently been reported as a missing person by Interpol. A further search of the suspect's lodgings in Hathersage Road turned out to be a treasure trove for police. Nearly every item in the suspect's room belonged to either George Green or to the missing Swiss national, a 24-year-old textile designer named Hans Rudi Gimme, who up until he was reported missing a few weeks before, had been living in Edinburgh and working in Dunfermline. The suspect that police had arrested, a 26-year-old Scottish man named Ian Simpson, was interviewed when detectives who were hunting the A9 killer arrived. Before long, he was charged with the murder of George Green and the theft of his Ford Anglia car. Simpson at first said that he'd bought the car at a Glasgow garage, then he'd found the car in Upper Booth Street in Manchester, then he went on further to make a short, rambling history about his mental state, saying that when he was in Dumfries Infirmary in July 1961, he told the doctor there, Dr Sterling, that he was going to kill someone. Simpson's mood then appeared to change completely, as though a floodgate had been opened, and he made a candid confession to the murder of George Green, during which he came across as being quite proud of what he'd done. This was going through my mind for a long time now. I shot him. I'm glad I've been caught. I was going to do it again, he told detectives. Simpson's confession told how he'd been picked up by George Green on the 7th of March, just north of Pitlochry, where he'd been put out of the car in a lay-by a couple of miles south of Newtonmoor, after the pair had disagreed over Simpson's condemnation of George for immorality and sin. Simpson continued, I came upon him again after walking two miles or so, maybe a bit more, and I'd made up my mind before this that he was a menace and decided then to shoot him. As he opened the window, we talked about our argument and he said he was sorry and offered to take me further in his car. He leaned across to open the passenger door for me and immediately as he opened it, I shot him. I'd loaded the gun and had it in my hand when I came around the back of the car. This was about 4.30pm and it was daylight. I stood looking at him and then decided to take him to a hospital. I moved him into the passenger seat and then drove up the road for a bit. By that time, I'd sort of gathered myself together and realised he was dead and it was no use taking him anywhere. I turned back and drove the back road to Aviemore, past Coilum Bridge towards Loch Morlich, 
The car stuck in the snow down that way. So this was when Simpson had come across the military roadblock. Following this close shave, Simpson had then turned the vehicle around at the nearest opportunity and headed south, stopping at various points to bury George's body in the lay-by where he'd first dropped him off, and then a few miles further along to dispose of his clothing. He claimed that his shooting of George Green was nothing more than a mission from God. I don't know, he doesn't sound much like one of the Blues Brothers really, does he? When Fraser asked Simpson about the other property that had been found in his room, that as identified as belonging to Hans Gimme, Simpson confessed immediately to killing him also. In a completely emotionless voice, he then offered to show police where he'd buried his body, so police now had a self-confessed double murderer in custody. The following day, Sunday the 6th of May 1962, Simpson was transported by police from custody in Manchester and driven northwards back across the border to Inverness. On the way, Simpson directed police into a remote part of Twiglees Forest in Dumfrieshire, where, handcuffed to D.I. Fraser, he led them about 50 yards off a remote and deserted Forestry Commission track, where yet another shallow grave was found. Hans Gimme had been reported as a missing person to Interpol by his family about three weeks before, after he'd uncharacteristically failed to turn up for his sister's wedding in Zurich on the 14th of April, which he'd been expected back home for. His final postcard to his family, which they'd received only a few days before the wedding, mentioned that he'd become friendly with a man who said he was a lecturer at Manchester University who'd offered to give him a lift. You hear the alarm bells ringing? The investigating team discovered that before flagging down George Green for a lift, Simpson had managed to hitchhike from Perth to Tomerton and had been picked up by at least two drivers, who if they're still alive today, will probably never be luckier in their lives. They'd simply not triggered Simpson's killer instinct. George Green, the next person who'd picked him up between Perth and Pitlochry, wasn't as lucky as we've heard. And less than a month after he'd killed George, Simpson felt a compulsion to kill again. In early April, Simpson had driven back up to the Highlands, still driving the stolen Ford Anglia, and he'd found himself by Loch Doich on the northwest coast of Scotland. On the shores of this is a picturesque castle named Aelian Donan, beautiful and much-visited tourist attraction and it was here that he'd met 24-year-old Hans, who was holidaying in the area at the time. The two men hit it off, and Simpson introduced himself as a professor from Manchester University. He was an academic of theology on that particular trip. He further impressed the Swiss by being able to converse in fluent German, something Simpson had learned from being stationed in Germany during his national service, and Gimme had no qualms in accepting when Simpson had offered him a lift after Gimme had disclosed that he was due to return to his lodgings to collect his belongings and get some more cash. Travelling together, the two men spent a night at a youth hostel some eight miles from Eilie and Donan, before heading to Edinburgh on the 7th of April, where Simpson spent the night in a nearby youth hostel, whilst Gimme slept in his lodgings with a female acquaintance of his. The following day, the two men set off again, and as they drove, the conversation soon turned to religion. Simpson mustn't have liked what he heard from Gimme, 
because he soon suggested that they stop for a picnic in lonely Twigley's forest, to which Gimme agreed. We already know how that picnic went. This wasn't your famous five kind of scoff with their boiled eggs and sunny days and lashings and lashings of ginger beer. Oh no, not in the slightest. It's likely that Simpson would have killed Gimme a lot sooner, probably almost immediately after meeting him, had he not needed cash to fund his continuing crusade, for want of a better word, which he took from Gimme's body, along with his wallet, his watch, and all of his clothing. These items were found at Simpson's lodgings in Manchester, where he returned to following the murder. Following the discovery of Hans Gimme's body, Simpson was charged with his murder and on the 7th of May 1962 appeared at court in Inverness where he was ushered in and out with a coat over his head. At a brief hearing in private in the sheriff's chambers, he was remanded in custody awaiting trial and taken to Porterfield Prison in Inverness. At all times from his arrest onward, Simpson was fluid and cooperative with police. He told them how he'd covered a substantial amount of ground in the Ford Anglia, the length of the country from London all the way up to the Highlands, and he pointed out places of interest on his journeys. He identified a spot near Netherfield Bridge in Kendal in Cumbria, where he disposed of the ammunition for the pistol. He identified a spot in the River Mersey that he'd thrown the pistol that he used to kill George Green and Hans with, which was near Crossford Bridge in Stretford and he identified the spot in Lady Bower Reservoir in Buxton in Derbyshire, where he disposed of the original number plates from the Ford Anglia, the very same reservoir immortalised on screen as it was with the Dambusters practice before the raid on Germany, as a matter of fact. That's a Bob Mitchell fact of the day for you. All the aforementioned items were recovered exactly where Simpson had said they would be. So although there was no reason then to disbelieve his account of the murders, Simpson proved to be a complex character who stretched the truth to suit him and who also lived in a world of partial make-believe. Born in 1936, he was one of ten children, having five brothers and four sisters, who'd grown up in a council house in Ramsey Place in the town of Copebridge in North Lanarkshire, and he'd grown into a problem teenager with a substantial history of petty crime, beginning when he was aged just eight, when he'd set fire to a haystack after God had told him to make a light. Simpson was an academically unexceptional pupil at the local Kildonan Senior Secondary School. Indeed, reports from the time place him as being of below-average intelligence before he left school in 1951 and became a grocer's delivery boy, followed by being an apprentice draftsman. Even from an early age, though, he was constantly in trouble for arson and stealing, and his mother Janet did wonder, even back then, if there was an issue, shall we say, with Ian. Some of the stuff that he stole, he simply gave back to who he'd stolen it from almost immediately afterwards as though it was just the compulsion to steal rather than the actual desire to have the item. And for someone so obsessed with religion, which he'd been since a young age, Simpson had seemed to target the church for his crimes, frequently being arrested for breaking into churches and chapels where he'd steal religious books and paraphernalia, which he'd then keep hidden in his bedroom at home. 
This had led firstly to a period in an approved school, followed by a number of short prison sentences before Simpson was conscripted in 1957 for national service into the Royal Army Service Corps. Simpson found himself here thrown into the mix with other young men of his age from a variety of backgrounds, both lawful ones and unlawful, and he began to develop a resentment of what he regarded as being vile behaviour in society, seeing it as impure. Of course, the hypocrite that he was, he would on one hand berate those who he viewed as having sinned and he preached the word of the Lord at every turn, yet he'd think nothing of stealing things, lying and performing confidence tricks. He'd thrived in the army where, having served most of the service in Germany, he'd learned to speak fluent German, but after he was demobbed in 1959, Simpson simply drifted back into his old ways, stealing from churches and burgling remote houses, in one of which, in Wester Ross, that's a real place in the Scottish Highlands by the way, it's not the one with Jon Snow and the Night King and Tits and Dragons and all that malarkey, Simpson found the pistol and ammunition that he used in the murders of George Green and Hans Gimme. At home, Simpson displayed a talent for painting, decorating and art and craft, and then he took up rambling. Now this was a new pastime that gave him the opportunity to spout nonsense and religious rantings about sin and immorality, and a whole new demographic of people that he met on his travels around Britain. He took pains to speak eloquently to everybody that he came across, favouring the Highlands for his hill-walking expeditions, because he found the Highlands to be teeming with middle-class hiking academics, whose company he enjoyed and who he felt seemed to accept the tall stories that he'd come out with without question. The strangely garbed little gnome-like figure, and that's not just me picking holes or making fun of him, by the way. More than one text that I used for research for this episode describes Simpson as appearing gnome-like in his size and the way he dressed. Although he didn't have a massive beard, a conical hat, a fishing rod, he didn't even have a bloody toadstool. And he'd try to impress these people that he met with his fantasy life, randomly passing himself off at different times as being a distant relative of the royal family, a doctor who was himself the son of a famous Glasgow brain surgeon or a heart specialist, depending on who he was talking to, a lecturer of religious studies at Manchester University, the list went on. In fact, the only thing that he probably didn't claim to be was Batman, and that's only because Batman isn't Scottish. He was like some sort of murdering Mr. Ben. Listeners who are not in the UK, Mr. Ben was a children's animated show about a man who used to go to a fancy dress shop, used to walk in a bowler hat all suited up. He'd walk into a fancy dress shop for some reason, put on a costume, go out of the changing room, and go and have a different adventure in a magical land each week. It's well worth the YouTube. And Simpsons' antics when he was at home were, were just as strange, perhaps even stranger. I mean, he could go from gentle pastimes such as lovingly building in detail a doll's house for one of his sisters, to the next day being discovered in the local graveyard digging up coffins. And then he tried a new tack. He actually started his own church in the Glasgow district of Barlanock. Donning a clerical collar, Simpson went door-knocking around the area, pretending to be a minister, and eventually, for a period, managing to build himself up a congregation of around 200 people. A real church was founded nearby soon afterwards, though, 
and Simpson's flock then began questioning things, such as his credentials to even run a church, and what exactly was happening to the money from the collection plates. When he was challenged about this, plus things like non-payment of rent for the hall used by the church, Simpson just simply did a runner. Long overdue by the sound of things, following this episode he was persuaded by his concerned family to enter Crichton Royal Hospital in Dumfries as a voluntary patient, and although a doctor there concluded that Simpson was of unsound mind and potentially a very dangerous man, he was there voluntarily, and it was his right, at least at that time, to leave of his own free will. A brief period in Glasgow's fearsome Barlini prison followed in June 1960 after yet another theft from a church, during which Simpson was again diagnosed as being of unsound mind. A consultant psychiatrist noted that throughout any conversation that was held with him, he always seemed to be far away, completely somewhere else. He'd screw up his eyebrows, squint and roll his eyes, and break into inappropriate laughter completely unrelated to what was being said at the time, as well as constantly talk about sin and God and the Bible and Lucifer and all of that mumbo-jumbo. Following this diagnosis, soon afterwards in July, he was admitted to Hartwood Hospital in Lanarkshire, where Simpson stayed until early 1961 before he absconded. He spent the next few weeks after doing a runner hitchhiking around England, a good distance away from any possible recapture. The Scottish law at the time dictated that anybody who was absconded from a secure establishment and who stayed out of trouble for more than 28 days without recapture earned the right to be at liberty as they were classed as being sane. I know, yeah, that's unreal, isn't it, eh? before Simpson was once again caught stealing from a Dumfries church. Although, as the 28-day window had passed, he couldn't be readmitted to the hospital because he was classed as sane. Whilst awaiting to appear before sheriffs in Dumfries charged with this theft, Simpson tried to hang himself in his cell. He was found and rescued in time, and when he came to trial, he received a nine-month prison sentence. Doctors examining him in prison concluded that Simpson was not suffering from a mental illness severe enough to have him certified, and so he spent his sentence in a prison cell, mostly reading as he was avoided by most of the other prisoners, because Simpson would constantly lecture them about sin and the wickedness of the world that they lived in, which is a bit preaching to the converted there really, isn't it? A prisoner who served time with Simpson remarked later, he was a nice enough wee guy, but everyone avoided him like the plague because once he got started on religion, there was no stopping him. It was pretty obvious that he had a screw loose, that there was something wrong with him, but he was never violent, just a bit of a religious nut who got steamed up whenever anybody argued with him. Lovely nice traditional Scottish tack there, isn't it? Following his release from prison, Simpson headed down and settled in Manchester, finding lodgings in Chorlton-on-Medlock with a lady named Alice Bustin, telling her he was an antiques dealer. Alice was soon impressed with a pleasant, educated and seemingly hard-working young man who was no problem in the house and paid his rent on time, as was also infatuated a 19-year-old hospital worker from Warrington named Estelle Kierans, who Simpson met and began courting shortly after his arrival. He wooed Estelle with gushing letters declaring his love for her, 
telling her how he wished to spend his life with her in a mountain home in the Cairngorms, and signing off all the time with Your Slave, Ian. Although Estelle had been taken in by his debonair charm, and she loved and trusted Simpson, who she knew as Jock, completely to the point where she'd even accepted his proposal of marriage, all of this was based upon a falsehood. Simpson had, as usual, created a fantasy life for himself, telling the young woman that he was a student from a wealthy Glasgow family who was studying theology in Manchester. She knew nothing of his brushes with the law, or his numerous spells in prisons and mental hospitals, and had accepted without question all of his fabricated stories. She was infatuated with him, only to learn after his arrest, to a devastation, that he told similar tales to another woman named Dorothy, who lived in Cheshire, and who he was seeing and wooing at the same time as Estelle. And he was about as much of an academic as Karen Matthews is a Mother of the Year contender. In reality, Simpson washed up dishes in a hotel kitchen, conned people out of money, or just simply stole. All of it was a complete fantasy, yet even after being told that her boyfriend was a self-confessed double murderer, Estelle maintained that she would always remember him as the kind and charming man that she'd fallen for. She said later, When we were out together he talked about his family and I got the impression that they were quite rich. I was always sorry when he had to go to Scotland without me, and it was after one of his trips that he came back with a car that I now know belonged to Mr Green. I noticed that when we were in the car he was always jumpy, and he complained that the police had stopped him several times and asked him about the car. Then he changed the number plates and colour. I light-heartedly asked him if he was the killer that the police were looking for, and he just laughed and said, I could be, dear. Some people tell me I was lucky not to have gone to Scotland with him, as he might have killed me, but I don't want to believe them. I want to remember him as the charming and kind boy that I knew. It must have been some act of Simpsons, that, mustn't it? But acting, passing himself off as something else, be it dog-collar-wearing pastor, kilt-wearing doctor, or romantic theology student, was something that Ian Simpson was used to. Deranged killer was something that he didn't have to pretend to be. Held in Porterfield Prison in Inverness whilst awaiting trial for the murders of George Green and Hans Gimme, Simpson was visited by psychiatrists and his family, including his mother Janet and his younger brother Donald. Janet Simpson said later, I didn't know what to expect. Nobody wants to think of their son as being a wicked murderer. At first we found it hard to speak as there were police officers in the room with us, but gradually we ended up talking around what he was said to have done. Instead, we chatted about his brothers and sisters and the weather. It became clear to his family, though, that Simpson had no sense of the gravity of his actions, and indeed they were disturbed by him. His brother Donald said after one visit, His eyes were vacant and he was staring into space. The only thing he was sincere about was his climbing equipment. I asked him what had made him do what he'd done, but he just shook his head and said, I did it, but what does it matter anyway? It's a terrible thing to say, but when I left, I was frightened of my own brother. Now I can imagine that's quite common, can't you? I mean, you wouldn't want to think of your child or your sibling in that way, would you? How would you even broach the subject? 
I remember reading many years ago a book about the Yorkshire Ripper, where two of Sutcliffe's brothers described speaking to him after his arrest and hearing him confess to some, but not all, of the murders. Their reaction's one of disbelief and questioning, really, as if it's something that they just can't take in. And how would you even begin to believe, let alone accept, that your own flesh and blood has done something like that? It must be a hell of a thing to hear, mustn't it? Simpson's trial was scheduled to begin at the High Court in Edinburgh in September 1962, but he was never actually to face trial for the murders. At a hearing in the High Court in August of that year, Simpson was found to be insane and unfit to plead. Handcuffed to police officer John Cameron throughout the proceedings, Simpson demonstrated this by quite calmly telling PC Cameron that if he was ever freed, he would hunt him down and kill him solely because P.C. Cameron was stood there carrying out his duties. Dr. Martin Whittitt, a consultant psychiatrist who'd examined Simpson in Craig Dunane Hospital in Inverness whilst he was on remand, told the court that in his opinion Simpson felt a real sense of achievement by the murders. He felt that he was doing things like that to impress upon people the notion that the world had a very flawed standard of belief and using his own beliefs and his own moral standards as benchmark, he believed he'd been ordained by God to kill anybody who didn't aspire to these to purify society. The murders had just been part of this divine mission and Simpson believed that both George and Hans were not actually dead, they were just changed. He wasn't really killing people, he was changing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, changing them from living people to dead people, yes. Dr. Whitted said that with motivating factors such as these leading Simpson to kill, given the chance, he was certain that Simpson would not hesitate to kill again. He told the court, He said he would have achieved more in the same direction if allowed. I regard him as a very dangerous person. There is no question of his just feigning the symptoms of insanity. The second psychiatrist to give evidence at the High Court was Dr. Ronald Cadell, who told how his examination revealed a severe and abnormal religious motivation in Simpson's mind. The court heard of Simpson's period of nine months passing himself off as a minister of religion, and how Dr. Cadell believed that women were never really in any serious danger from Simpson. He wasn't motivated by sex, and he didn't hate women. He believed, indeed, that he'd been put on earth to protect women and children from sin. Any violent responses ever from Simpson were triggered at men by derogatory remarks about women or responses that didn't coincide with his own puritanical religious views. Dr. Cadell told the court he was quite sure that he would be caught eventually, but he wanted to carry on what he felt was good work for as long as possible. Sentencing Simpson to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure without limit of time at the State Mental Institution at Carstairs, presiding judge Lord Kilbrandon said, The outstanding feature of this case is that the accused had in 1960 been certified as a public danger and confined as such. He escaped from his confinement, he was not discharged as being cured, instead was just subjected to the old routine of a short prison sentence. I am not blaming anyone for this, it is the system. If this is the system, and if the system has given rise to serious public uneasiness, 
I cannot say that I am in the least bit surprised. I do not suggest there is any individual as such to blame, but I hope that this case will never be forgotten by those responsible for this country's mental administration. It isn't known whether the prison authorities had ever had Simpson assessed before his release, but it seems unlikely that they did. He presented clear evidence of a long-standing mental illness, and psychiatrists testified as to his severe religious motivation in his murders. It's well documented of his lifelong obsession with religion, so should he have been hospitalised long before he was? I think so, definitely. And it led to a review of the provisions in the Mental Health Act, that allowed Simpson to abscond and not be looked for, because it was clearly at fault that, wasn't it? If someone is hospitalised because they need to be in a hospital, then surely all efforts should be made to find them, regardless of a time limit, until you do actually find them. I found it mind-boggling that the period of freedom a person needed to be at large for, without recapture in order to prove sanity, was just 28 days, less than a bloody month. It was extended to six months sometime afterwards, but that still seems wrong to me, and it seems quite worrying. Police strongly considered that due to his motivation and the length and breadth of the country that Simpson had travelled, there may indeed be other unsolved murders that he was responsible for, possibly even some in Germany when he was there completing his national service. Although there are several unsolved crimes that indeed may have been the work of Ian Simpson, many of these have been laid at the feet of another infamous Scottish killer, Peter Manuel. Manuel was of course hanged for his crimes, so his guilt in these cases can never be ascertained, a punishment Simpson came very close to, because at the time of the A9 murders, they were of course capital crimes, and had he been found fit to plead and had he been convicted, he would have received the sentence dictated by law, hanging. But Simpson never admitted to any other crimes, and with no evidence, he was incarcerated solely for the murders of George Green and Hans Gimme. So, Ian Simpson was never to face the hangman, but nor was he ever to be a free man again. Being sent to Carstairs for what would have been considered a considerable period of many years wasn't to be the end of his remarkable tale, because he would be back in the headlines some years later. In Carstairs he became a model patient, he studied hard for an open university degree, and by the time 1974 arrived, Simpson had spent the 12 years he'd been incarcerated studying, obtaining a Bachelor of Arts degree, and honours degrees in science and social studies. He played and taught guitar to the other patients, he was an active member of the institution drama group, and if he hadn't had such a flawed personality, Simpson could have ironically become the university lecturer that he sometimes pretended to be some 12 years before. Instead, Ian Simpson, the gnome who spoke to God, was to end up himself being the link in the Scottish chain of ten I've entitled the episode, and that the murders he himself committed were numbers one and two in. And if you think his is a memorable tale, then wait until you find out the full horrific story in the next episode, if you don't already know it of course, or you don't jump down the rabbit hole to have a nosy as soon as you've heard this episode. Absolutely remarkable tale this one isn't it? Who knows how long Simpson could have gone on killing for, 
had that car not been spotted in Manchester by a sharp-eyed young man. Fascinating case this one I found, and I hope that you can join me for the second part which is coming next week. I look forward to bringing it to you then. You can share your thoughts about Simpson's case on the thread in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group if you want to, or you can get in touch through the usual social media. Either would be great because I'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. You can also get in touch about or submit a researched case to the show, or even you can get yourself involved as a Patreon supporter of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast should you wish. The links for each are available as always in this week's show notes. So that's a wrap for this episode guys, part one of the Scottish Chain of Ten, with the second part coming next week. I'll catch you then, same bat time, same bat channel. Until we speak, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all safe and happy times, and I shall speak to you soon. Cheers for joining me all, and goodbye for now.